Last week with Pastor Matt Riddle from First Church, uh, we are now back into the book of Acts, where we will be turning to Acts chapter 23, and we'll be reading tonight from verses 12 through 35, so you can turn there in your Bibles uh, to Acts 23 verses 12 through 35, and since it's been a couple of weeks now since our time in Acts, it's going to be helpful for us to recall the situation of all that's going on in the story at this point. So since about chapter 20, the narrative focus of the book has been on Paul's journey to the city of Jerusalem. And throughout Paul's letters, it's interesting to know that if you were to read the different letters that Paul writes, you'll get a feeling that Paul really wants to go to Jerusalem because he wants to bring a collection from the Jewish or from the Gentile churches that he's been planting and helping. He wants to bring a collection of money back to the Jewish Christians located in the city of Jerusalem. Now, this would have been for various reasons. One of the clear reasons would have been because Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were struggling at this point. It was very difficult to be a Christian in the city of Jerusalem in the middle of the first century. And this was largely because Jews at this point in time, were not happy with the Christian uh, faith, which they saw as a sect. And that's why Paul is in trouble, as we've seen. So that's one reason he wants to bring them this, this collection of funds. But another one is to show the Jewish Christians that they are now a part of the same family with these Gentile Christians. For, so for Jewish Christians to be given a gift from Gentile Christians, it would have gone a long way, I think, in sort of bridging the gap. Uh, but throughout Acts, it's interesting that this collection hardly gets any mention. Instead, it seems that the narrative focus is that the Spirit is simply calling Paul there to go to the city of Jerusalem, though it's clearly going to be dangerous for him. And I think part of this, as I've made mention of in the past few weeks, is that Acts is sort of, in many ways, drawing parallels between Paul and Jesus, who Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing full well that it was going to be dangerous for him. And so as we've seen over the course of the past couple chapters, this is exactly how it turned out for Paul. Even in his attempts to assuage the Jews by participating in a a purifying vow, which we saw in Acts chapter 20, Uh, He goes to the temple, he participates in this purification vow with these other young men. His presence there, however, was enough to start a riot. They recognize him, we're told, and they capture him and they bring him out and they are about to kill him in the courts of the temple. And though Paul has now tried to defend himself, both in his bold address, which he speaks to, to the people, to the angry mob. And as we saw last time, he defended himself against the Jewish Sanhedrin council, which was made up of both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, he still finds himself as a prisoner of the Roman authorities. And he's being held in the barracks of the fortress of Antonia, which was right outside of the temple complex. And it's a funny twist of irony then, isn't it? That the Roman overlords, so hated by the Jewish people, seem to be unclean Gentiles, that they are now, here in Luke's narrative, kind of seen as the heroes in some way. The ones who step in as before Paul is about to be killed by the angry Jewish mob. They step in, they arrest him, and they take him in for questioning. And it happens to be them who saves him. And so... The Jews see the Romans as a thorn in their side, but in Luke's narrative, they're seeing it a little bit differently. 
And so with all of this in mind, this context, we now come to our passage tonight. So let's pray before we read. Our Father, we thank you for the witness of Paul and of his life and for the wisdom of Luke in writing it down for us that we may know it and that we may grow in our understanding of the church's earliest history and that we may see ourselves as a part of this same story all these many years later. Lord, as we turn to these words, we ask that you would enlighten us, that you would teach us, that we may go from here being changed this morning, or this evening. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. So, hear now the word of the living God from Acts 23, verses 12 through 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called him, or called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. 
When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this passage, I can't help but think with all of the intrigue and the sort of suspense on the line of a plot being hatched and a plot being discovered, it sort of all reminds me of a sort of action thriller movie of sorts, sort of with a spy, and there's a lot of tenseness in the story. Uh, But there's also an interesting feature here in our story as well, which is something we've seen in the past few weeks in a addition, it seems as though Paul is clearly trying to, or as Luke is clearly trying to draw a parallel between the story of Christ and Paul, as I've said. So just as Jesus struggled against fierce opposition in the city of Jerusalem, Paul here is too. Jerusalem, as it was well known at this time, was sort of the, the city where prophets came to die. God's people often in the Old Testament are condemned because they condemned God's prophets. God would send messengers and in their hard-heartedness they would reject these messengers in the city of Jerusalem and they would put them to death. And so this is happening not only then with Jesus's own life, but now it's happening with Paul's. They are wanting to kill him. And so all of this goes to show the hardness of the Jewish people's hearts at this point in time. And this is a point that we've made already. But there's also another fascinating thing going on here in Acts 23. It's that uh, things have really come full circle here as well. Think about it. Paul was once the hunter of Christians, and now Paul is the prey of Christians. Things have really changed. If his encounter then, maybe with Jesus in Acts chapter 9, where Jesus meets him on the Damascus road, shines a great light, blinding Paul, and tells him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? If that had never happened, it's very likely, actually, that Paul would have still been in the city of Jerusalem, and he would have been a part, maybe, of this assassination group who had plotted and taken an oath together to kill him. He probably would have been amongst these violent, uh, angry Jews who were trying to bring the Christians to heal. But as it is, he is now the target of this persecution for the sake of his Lord. And as we've read already, as he lies safely behind the Roman barracks, an oath is taken by a group of about of over 40 devout Jewish men who, thinking that they are doing the right thing, take an oath to bring him to death, even going so far as to say we will neither eat nor drink. So given that Paul was now in a sort of limbo state, that the Jews would likely, uh, they would try to see this as an opportunity. He's uh, not really in trouble with the Roman authorities, but he is still being held in their, uh, in their custody, it's decided that the Jewish council should try to ask for Paul to come again. Paul has already come to the Jewish council, as we've seen, and sat before them for questioning. And, but they, that was disrupted, as we saw, by Paul's uh, clever tactics. And he claims his position as a Pharisee who believes in the resurrection, right? And so the 
the conversation is disrupted. It turns and descends into an argument. And so he's taken back out of the council and returned to the barracks. So now these 40 assassins come in together and say, okay, Sanhedrin council, you should request Paul to come again for more questioning. And it's then that we will jump on the opportunity. And so they want him to be led from the Antonia fortress, again, right outside the temple's walls, and to come into the council chamber where they would meet to question Paul. Now, this walk from the fortress, from the barracks to the council chamber, would have been only about 1,500 feet, which would be, I roughly mapped this out, from here to Calvary Reformed Church, just about two blocks away. And so Paul would be taken by the Roman guards and led uh, across the, the courtyard into this council. And so this would have been a time where he would have been somewhat vulnerable. Now, nobody really knows how many Roman guards would have attended Paul. They knew that he was sort of a hated criminal. He was, people wanted to kill him. And so they probably would have given, scholars say, about 50 soldiers to escort Paul on this small journey of about 1,500 feet. And so it's estimated or sort of assumed that this would have looked like a double file line of 50 men. And where Paul was would have been right in the middle of this line. And he would have had Roman soldiers chained to his wrists on either side of him, sort of to protect him, but also to make sure as a fugitive that he didn't escape during this time. And so while the group of about 40 Jews would have been probably outnumbered, it would have been enough for them to stage a lightning strike attack. If they were waiting in the courtyard, which was quite common at the time, just to be standing outside of the temple casually, maybe chatting with your friends before you go into the temple, uh, they could make it look like they were at peace. And then as soon as Paul walked by, if there was only guards on either side of Paul, it could have easily happen for them to jump in, strike him, take him out, and then deal with the aftermath after that. And so the assassins, they take this plan to the council uh, and they try to pitch it to them. They're so sick of Paul and they're trying to get rid of him. But while the plot seemed foolproof, it turned out, of course, to be quite leaky. Uh, it wasn't exactly the perfect plot. Somehow, some way, word did get out. And perhaps it didn't occur to them that with such a large number of them making this pact together, that something would eventually leak out. Perhaps one of them was a young man who was excited to tell people about, hey, I'm a part of this interesting plot. I don't know. That's maybe just speculation. But one way or another, Paul's nephew does catch wind of what's going on. He hears of what's going on. And this is an interesting detail. Where we don't really hear much in the scriptures about Paul's own personal family. It's one of the few times we hear anything, unless we count a rather vague statement in Romans chapter 16, where he mentions his kinsmen. We don't know if he means fellow Jews or his own family. And so while it's hard to read much into this, it would seem that Paul's sister and her husband, presumably, were living in the city of Jerusalem. As a young man, Paul, who'd been born in Tarsus, far away on the coast in Asia Minor, he, he did move to Jerusalem and he studied under the Pharisee leader Gamaliel. And so it's presumed, presumed that his family moved with him, his siblings, and that his sister was still a part of Jerusalem society. Uh, 
And we're not told, however, if his family had come at this point to be followers of the way of Christ. We don't know if they were still practicing Jews or if they were Christians, but in one way or the other, they still had a value for Paul's life. They didn't see him completely as a traitor to the Jewish faith. And additionally, it's quite interesting to note how easily Paul's nephew was able to enter the barracks. Uh, It reads as if he just casually walked into the barracks. But this must mean in some way that Paul was respected by those who were guarding him. Uh, They saw him really as no threat. And so at this point, they knew that their job was mostly to protect him. And they were therefore okay with him, especially because he was a Roman citizen. They were okay with his family coming to meet with him and to talk with him. They were fully convinced then that he was not a threat to Rome. They were on Paul's side. And so having heard their schemes, then Paul then uses his clout and asks for his nephew to be sent to the tribune, to Lysias, uh, to tell him what's going on so that he may know and be made aware. And so the boy goes through the proper channels, and as he does, he becomes something of an apostle or a messenger on behalf of his uncle, the capital A apostle. But let's not miss it here. If it were ever discovered that this young man said anything, it would be extremely costly to him and would be costly to his whole family. If the Jewish people in Jerusalem knew where the leak came from and who the sort of one that was that spilled the information, it would be costly. It would very likely cost this young man and his family his life because they were dealing with a what to them was a blasphemous man, this man Paul. And so if he was helping his uncle, he was a traitor on the Jewish faith. And so with the utmost discretion upon hearing about the plot, the tribune then wisely admonishes the young man to say nothing, to not tell anyone that what he has done in his undercover work on his uncle's behalf. And this is sort of then an implicit promise on the behalf of the tribune that he's going to do the same. He's not going to share where this information came from. He's even going to make this whole thing look like they were they just decided to take Paul elsewhere, not because they had heard anything. And so once again, this all goes to show how much of a pressure cooker Jerusalem was at this time. It was a tense time in the city's history. And as we know, uh, some 15 or so years later, it would be the destruction of Jerusalem as the Romans would come and lay siege to the city and even destroy the temple. And so hearing this seditious plot, the tribune quickly hatches and dispatches a plot of his own. It's sort of counteractive plot. He now says that his centurions should escort Paul and should take a number of soldiers. And we see this plot in verses 23 and 24, which you can see on the screen. We read there that he then called two of the centurions and said, get ready and send 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That would be about 9 p.m. at night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And so just as the Jewish assassins weren't playing around, they took a vow not to eat or drink anything. You can see the seriousness of their, of their decisions. So too, the tribune is not playing around either. He's very serious and puts together a force of nearly 500 men to escort Paul. So we see 
200 soldiers who were, would have been soldiers on foot, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Of course, just as the name implies, I assume, carrying spears ready to defend against an onslaught. And so they leave at 9 p.m. right when the Jews would have probably least expected this to happen. And it would have made it all even more uh, hush about why they did this, uh, why this happened. Because at this point, the Jews didn't know that the Romans knew what they were trying to do. So there's a bit of intrigue and interesting decision-making here. And so Luke even includes a detail that Paul was given his own horse mount, uh, which goes again to show how highly they respected uh, Paul as a Roman citizen. He's given his own horse mount, his own horse, and this was presumably so in case of, a, of an attack, if, the, if he needed to, Paul could escape himself and could flee from the battle. Thankfully, however, this proves to be unnecessary in the end. And as we see in verse 31, the cohort safely arrives at night to the city of Antipatris, which was essentially really just the halfway point from Jerusalem up to the northwestern coast city of Caesarea, where that's where the sort of destination was. And we'll get to that in weeks to come. But in verses 25 through 30, Luke records for us the sort of substance of the letter that this tribune sends to the governor, Felix. And it's important to make note, I think, of the letter's contents. Two weeks ago, as we looked at the story of Paul's sitting before the council and being questioned by the council, and again, how he split them up by siding with the Pharisees, talking about how this whole thing is about the resurrection, and that caused a, a divisive argument to ensue, and he was then taken out from their presence by the Roman governor. I, I noted then that we should remember that the, the Roman tribune was sitting there listening to this because he was trying to figure out why is Paul in trouble here? Why is this man Paul uh, being causing such a conflict? The Roman tribune wanted to make sure that Paul was not a threat to the Roman empire. He wanted to make sure that Paul was uh, not going to try to rally some seditious plan or coup to overthrow the Roman overlords. And so once he determined that Paul's case was merely an in-house theological debate amongst the Jews, he really then didn't care too much about what Paul's differences of opinions were with the rest of the Jews. He saw it sort of as a family discussion that the Jews were having themselves. And we can see this then in his letter uh, where he, he explains that he's basically only in trouble because he has a difference of opinion on some things of Jewish doctrine. So Paul foiled this plan, and he showed this the tribune what his real issues were. Uh, it was that he was simply having a difference of opinion. But, interestingly, I think it's true at the same time that Paul's beliefs did, in fact, uh, conflict with Roman doctrine. The Romans had a saying, and you've probably heard it before, "'Caesar is Lord.'" Little known to this tribune that, yes, in fact, Paul's teaching would subvert, in the end, the Roman Empire's authority in claiming that Jesus is Lord. But for now, Paul is seen as a citizen who is deserving of protection and of his rights to be uh, 
to be had. And so he's sent off. And in the end, we see Felix's response when he reads the letter. We see that he says at the end of this passage, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And we'll get to you next time. But you can see that he is following proper good order here on behalf of this Roman citizen named Paul. And so having now worked our way through the particular episodes here in Acts chapter 23, and at the conclusion really of Paul's now sort of long story in the city of Jerusalem, now he's done. He will not go back to the city of Jerusalem. I think it should be, it would be helpful to conclude our time simply by making a few uh, observations or lessons of what we might learn from this passage. And I would say that the first and clearest lesson is the providential care of the Lord, which we must rest upon and rely on. Again and again, over the short course of the time that he was in the city of Jerusalem, Paul had come within inches of losing his life. It somehow seems like he's a slippery creature that you cannot quite hold. He keeps getting away right at the last minute. Uh, when they bring him out to the courtyards to kill him, right then the Roman guards come in and swoop him up and take him and protect him. And then when he's about to be beaten by the Roman guards so that they can extract answers and get to the bottom of who he is, he pulls out his Roman citizenship card, not his physical card, but he declares, I'm a Roman citizen, which meant that he couldn't be flogged. Flogging could have killed him. It was known to be a fatal attack sometimes. And so he is protected even then. And then he goes to this council meeting where he's questioned and things get get complex and crazy again. And Paul is taken away. And now there's even a, a plan to kill Paul. And somehow, once again, he escapes. And all of this then, I think we can simply see that God protects his messengers. God's providential care was clear in the life of Paul. It was not just plain luck. He was a messenger commissioned by God to preach to the Gentiles. He still had a job to do, and God was going to see to it that he got there. And we'll continue to see this theme through the rest of the book. Uh, you can think, for example, of the shipwreck. Paul will have in a few chapters from now the shipwreck on the island of Malta, uh, where he, even though his ship crashes into the coral, somehow Paul still survives. And then he's bitten by a snake, and he survives that. And so all of these things just go to show God's assurance, God's providence in our lives, protecting those whom he loves. And this makes me think of Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 27, which reads as follows. What do you understand by the providence of God? So what do we mean by the providence of God? The Catechism answers with this. The Almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. This is a great reminder for us, especially in those lean years or in those difficult seasons, to remember that all things come to us as a gift of God's fatherly hand, even the difficult things that come our way. And Paul was no stranger to the difficult seasons of life, both with physical illness, as we know from reading his letters, but also with the hatred and opposition that he faced as a regular part of his daily life. 
Another lesson, I think, comes from the example of Paul's young nephew here in the text. Whoever this young man was, we know for certain that he was brave and courageous and willing to put his life on the line. He was alert to the times that he lived in. He sort of knew the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age of his city. He knew what was going on, and he decided to act accordingly. So he was discreet, he was clear and direct and concise. He knew his times, and he lived in them, and he made decisions to do the right thing even when it could have cost him very much. And so like him, we should be aware of the times in which we live. We ought to keep an eye out on society around us, listening and keeping an eye on uh, the world's schemes against God and against God's will. Now, this doesn't mean that we're to be heresy hunters or we're to be going around hating everything in the world, always seeing the worst in everyone and everything who isn't explicitly Christian, but it does mean that we should be brave and that we should be wise and we should be keeping an eye on things. This, there is the way of righteousness and there's the way of evil. And so as wise believers, we should know the difference and act accordingly, just as this young man did in telling his uncle. The third lesson I think we can derive from this text is that we ought to be thankful for just governance. We ought to be thankful for the times when governments, though imperfect, act according to good principles and justice. They uphold uh, order in our state and in our country. Again, regardless of how imperfect or even corrupt our leaders are, though Luke certainly seems to applaud the Roman tribune for his impartiality and commitment to to principle, he was probably by no means a saint either. This tribune wasn't perfect. And though not much is known about the Tribune's personal biography, there's a great deal more known about the governor, Felix, who we read about at the end of the passage. And actually, it turns out, he was a fairly wicked governor. According to his contemporaries and to historians, he was well known for cruelty, for sedition and and hatching plans to kill other leaders in neighboring areas so that he could uh, defend his own right to the throne. And he was... Also well known, it was well documented that he had a propensity for taking bribes, for being bribed one way or the other so long as you paid him enough. But nevertheless, despite the flaws of Felix, as well as the tribune and many of the Roman soldiers, it's quite clear that the scripture teaches us here to be thankful for the machinery of Rome's involvement in Judea. Without it, Paul would have likely died prematurely. But because he was a citizen of this society, of this empire, which had laws and regulations and rules, and because of this, he survived and he was protected. And so we should simply say, thank you, Lord, that we live in a nation imperfect as it is, who still in many ways upholds good principles and laws and justice. Thank you that there are there are judges, there are courts, there are law enforcement officers who see to the well-being of our nation. Thank you, Lord, that these things work the way that they do so that we as the church may continue to faithfully share the Christian faith. Despite who our leaders are and all their imperfections, we ought at the very least to be thankful 
for this. And so, as we think, especially as we come into a, an election uh, cycle now, it's sort of beginning to kick up. And I know maybe it's a difficult time. There's some anxiety in our hearts or just some frustration with, 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 with what we see. We should be thankful that we live in this nation imperfect as she is. And we can pray for her even still. So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray now.